You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening. Welcome to everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Monday the 13th of April 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, we're later on going to be looking at Matthew Vines. I've done programs before, years ago, I think, at this point. I can't remember. Um, going back in the archives on Matthew Vines. I remember a couple of years ago when I initially covered him, he got big on Google and YouTube and things like that. And he did a couple of Google Talks and... Became another person to, well, torture the scriptures in order to say something contrary to the natural sense of the very word of God. I didn't invest a whole ton of time years ago. I remember thinking, well, how long will this guy be around? And um, a couple of years ago, the Reformation Project began. And I also did another critique, I think about three years ago, now, I can't remember the exact timeline, but on that panel, when we, when I watched it, it was quite scary because one of the men on the panel is viewed by a few as reformed. Now, you'd have to go back through the archives to find out um, through that, and I looked at that. We're gonna, we will look at that in a second, because um, I... This is probably going to be the first normal, quote-unquote, normal. Are there any normal programs anymore since uh, the lockdown? This is basically episode number seven of lockdown. The the lockdown episodes, the lockdown chronicles, or whatever you want to call them at this point. And um, during this time, we're going to be looking through the Psalter. And I would encourage you all, if you're in edification, especially if you don't, and if you do, and if you do have a position of singing the Psalms in worship, sing them more. If you've never sung them before, I would encourage you to get a psalter. And you don't need musical instruments. You don't need anything. All you need is a tune. And you don't have to spend any money. If you have this internet connection right now, you can look up 1650 Scottish Metrical Psalter. There are other psalters as well. But that is the most freely available and easiest to get. And it is a an excellent translation. It is basically like the authorized version Um equivalent of the, the metrical psalter and it was done by the church of scotland back in the 17th century but it is still even many of the versions that we still sing in our denomination psalter will have versions like that from the 1650 now um so we're going to look through psalm number seven i'm not going to go through all of it for the sake of time because there's a lot i want to get on to with regards to the Matthew Vines critique, but we will spend a little bit of time reading parts of Psalm 7. So if you have a Bible in front of you, we'll look at that now. And we'll just have a word of prayer for those who are here. Again, this is an incredible, difficult time. Uh, We don't want to forget that. But also, as much as possible, I would encourage you all, I had a conversation with a brother earlier on, as much as possible, within reason, okay? We're not robots. We're not... But try and have some kind of a schedule. Try and have some sense of normality. I know we're stuck in our homes, but 4 billion people, I don't know how many people are stuck in your homes right now. 
and whatever the case may be, I can guarantee, use it for the Lord. If you have a Bible and you're a Christian, spend lots of time in the Word of God and in prayer. What a wonderful opportunity to spend more time with the Lord in prayer. And perhaps the Lord in His providence, I'm sure the Lord in His providence is using that, that we will spend more time alone with Him. Of course, we miss time in our congregations, those are not a meeting. We miss meeting with the brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's there's a wonderful opportunity to be alone with the Lord, get rid of the... This is not a time for more Netflix subscriptions or whatever else. This is a time for more time in the Lord. And I'm not saying that you can never relax or whatever, but what a wonderful time it is to do that. So try and take this time, and whether you're alone or whatever, it's better to sing with other people as well, but if you're even by yourself, sing the Psalms to the Lord as the apostles once did, as the early church once did, as the reformers did, as people in Scotland, people in Northern Ireland still continue to do to this day, people in the Republic of Ireland, people all over the world still continue to sing the Psalms in worship. Again, you don't, not only do you not need instruments, I would argue that you shouldn't put instruments into New Testament worship, but we won't get into that here. Psalm 7. Verse 1, and we'll just pray before we read. Heavenly Father, please bless us. Open our eyes to wonderful things from your precious and holy truth. Bless this reading, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, this probably won't give all of the psalm, but we're just going to read from verses 1 to 5, and also we're going to read uh, verses 11 to 17. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, I have done this. Is there, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overcome me. Let Yes, let him trample my feet to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. And then for verses 11 to 17 at the end of the psalm, God is a just judge. God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death and makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violence stealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. And we'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This is what we ought to be doing when the Lord bless the reading of his precious, holy, and infallible word. Just a few comments on Psalm 7 at the start of this program. O Lord, my God, in you I put my trust. And this isn't in an easy 
situation. The introduction to the Psalms is a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush. In just two seconds, I'm going to grab a commentary there. On the probable significance of the context of this reference to Cush in um, the Treasuries of David by David, uh, not David Spurgeon, <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, the title we learn the occasion of the composition of the song. It appears probable that Cush the Benjamite had accused David to Saul of treasonable conspiracy against his royal authority. This the king would be ready enough to credit both from his jealousy of David and from the r- relation which most probably existed between himself, the son of Kish, and, his, and this Cush, or Kish, the Benjamite. He who is near the throne can do more injury to his subject than an ordinary, ordinary slanderer. So that is worthy to keep in mind as we read through this and as we meditate upon this. When we have possible here slandering close to us, it hurts far more, and it's far more also damaging as well. Save me, it says here, from all those who persecute me and deliver me. So there's a massive sense of desperation, and we will face times like this. We will face times when we feel that everyone is against us, especially if we stand for truth. If we seek to be the most popular person in the room at all times, there's something wrong with our spiritual walk. But at the same time, we're not also trying to be at war with everybody. We are to live peaceably. And that is a a balance that is very hard for us at times because we're sinners, unfortunately. Oh, Lord, my God, I have done this. If there's iniquity in my hands, he's, he's pleading before of his righteousness. And again, we, we know by justification by faith alone, it is not our righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ. And he's pleading his prayer and pray for the deliverance from his enemies. And we're just going to look a little bit. So there's a pleading against the wickedness of the enemies. And look, we may face this. We may face this after this Pandemic ends. We don't know what's going to happen after this pandemic. How many of the governments will give back their powers? I say duties are ours. Consequences are God's. Right now our duties are because from what we can see, the governments are doing so. We can't read their hearts and all this kind of stuff, but they're doing so for the good of society and things like that. And we ought to submit to that. If, if the governments were shutting down everything in order to persecute Christians or target churches specifically, then, okay, we should reject that. But that's not what's happening now. Assemblies of all sorts are being shut down. So, and this is just, this is nothing to do with Christian persecution. I'm sorry that people seem to be jumping on this a lot. There's a bit of heavy handedness at times. Of course, you're going to get bad police officers. You're going to get bad everything. You're going to get some heavy handed health inspector, whatever it is, in any line of work. Of course you're going to get that. But this is to comfort us. Let's look at the God we serve. God is a just judge, and he's angry with the wicked every day. He is against the wicked. And this should comfort us because he is for us against our enemies. 
but in the midst of this trouble, verse 16, his trouble shall return upon his own head and his violence dealing shall come down on his own crown. Those who come against us, we, don't, we want them to come to Christ, but there is a sense in which we want the Lord to bring destruction upon their machinations, upon their, 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 their schemes against the cause of Christ. And, and this we should all be doing in these days, a coronavirus, in calamity, concern. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I will praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Never forget that. Never get caught up in all this kind of debates. I mean, say, oh, should the government doing this? Should we... Praise the Lord. There's a sense in which our jo- there's a joy that the, 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 no matter what's happening, the government or whatever else, the powers that be or whatever, cannot take from us. I know we should have a biblical and submissive attitude to those authorities who are ministers of God. We shouldn't use that as an excuse for rebellion. However, at the same time, they do come against us. And if we do face persecution, and perhaps in the future, our freedoms will be taken away in the West, and perhaps it will chasten a somewhat lazy and sluggish church. We don't know. And the Lord knows the right things to do. Trust him. Trust him. I would much rather, speaking of the old thing about freedoms, I'd much rather all our freedoms were taken away if it meant that multitudes would come to Christ. Of course, I would prefer to have that freedom to be able to go to church. And of course, no one wants to suffer. That granted. But at the same time, if it means that it opens up men's hearts, if it opens up multitudes to the, to, to the brevity of life, I say bring it on. We should all say bring it on. I'd far rather that than go back into comfort, into squalor, spiritual squalor, into complacency, where we don't take we don't see how precious these truths are, and it's only in the midst of these troubles we see, aha, I'm surrounded with enemies, and this is what David must have felt. This is how Christ himself felt. Again, the Christocentric nature of the Psalms. David is, of course, a type of Christ. He is our king of Israel, spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. That we would put our trust in him. Not when it's easy, and not the choices are sports versus going to church. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the choices are death or renounce Christ. It doesn't always have to be so. Revival can sometimes break out when it's not so stark. 
But how often does it? How often in the midst of crises does the, the Lord, by these means, show a lost and dying world that they are not in control, that the governments of the world are not in control, that you, man or woman or child created in the image of God, you are not in control. If this virus has taught us anything, we are not in control. And it's teaching us more and more. We are not, a, we're not even in control of a tiny virus. But God is. And I praise God that he is in control. All right, so... Spent a tiny bit longer on that than I anticipated, but worth it. Again, hopefully that's an encouragement to you. And we'll be tomorrow... on a. Yeah, tomorrow actually there might be a program as well. Um, I'm hoping to have a good brother in the Lord on the program tomorrow. And um, I haven't done a live program with somebody on Skype yet, so I'm going to see how that's all going to work out. So keep us in your prayers about that, hoping to talk about assurance for struggling believers. That's what we're hoping to talk about tomorrow. So please keep us in your prayers on that subject, because I know, look, many of us are scared, many of us are worried, and how many within the church are not very assured of their salvation and have deep struggles in that area. Not a new topic for the church. Don't run away from it. Meditate upon the Word of God, and we'll, we'll talk more about that tomorrow. Anyway, so getting on to our topic, this is a talk we're going to be looking at. And I'm going to pull, turn it down here because I hadn't pulled it up initially. The YouTube video, if you want to look it up yourself and watch it, if you want to go through this, um, make sure it's not going faster than normal. Okay, Matthew Vines, for the Bible tells me so, hermeneutics and the debate about LGBTQ inclusion. And um, this is on the Reformation Project's YouTube channel. And the talk was given at... Was it November 8th? It was posted not too long ago, actually. Posted only like about a month ago. But the talk was given on March the 8th, no, November the 8th, sorry, 2019, at Plymouth Church, United Church of Christ in Seattle, Washington. And again, you might think, oh, why are we doing this? You know, low-hanging fruit and all this kind of stuff. Uh, why even go through this? Th this stuff is being spread around all sorts of places. These arguments are going in all sorts of places. And if you want to be naive and think that these are, this is not coming, we are so influenced by the culture. We, are, we don't realize it. We have become desensitized to things, to crimes that are contrary to nature. And while we were to love People who are caught up in that whole bracket. Absolutely. But how that love is shown out will vary. You'll get the person who is very open to listening and is probably very friendly. In the media, I can think of someone like Dave Rubin, who seems to... Has Dave Rubin? He, Dave Rubin is a, is a homosexual who has the Rubin Report and has people on and he actually listens. And... Trying to think, has he ever had any evangelicals on? I know he's had Roman Catholics. But anyway, I digress. If somebody like that, then you'd be friendly and you try to share the gospel and you try to lead them to Christ. 
even though the man claims to be quote unquote gay married, even though the, that's not a thing. It's like a, a square circle. Okay, we cannot water down or accept any other definition of marriage than what the Bible lays out for us. So in a situation where they're friendly, they're, they're open to listening, and things like, well, we'll be friendly back, and we should, and welcoming, etc., and so on. Um, and then when, say, when people have less and less excuse, maybe they're raised in, in, in a Christian home, maybe in the, in the church for a long time, or whatever, let's just say, for want of a better term, they should know better. Well, a stronger rebuke is needed. A much stronger rebuke is needed. And then if they're enemies of the church and, you know, are, you know open, attacking. So I'm not trying to put all these people in one bracket. Not all of them are Marshagisans saying we want to destroy the Institute of Marriage. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Um, that was something we, we dealt with years ago on the program. So let's get into this. Let's um, critique this. I'm starting at about uh, 34 minutes and 28 seconds into this video. I'm not covering the initial part. The initial part of the video is basically, well, the, the Bible, the, the church changed its view on uh, slavery. So therefore, you probably know where this is going. Um, the the Bible change the Christian Church changed how it viewed slavery, so therefore we should change our view on other things, or at least be open to a kind of more dynamic, changing hermeneutic. And you know we got that wrong, so therefore, um, look, Christians have always seen there may have been variations and all that man stealing as evil taking of slaves and this is even condemned and rebuked as well in the old testament by the way of stealing and selling it's called man stealing in the av i think it's is a first timothy chapter one verse 10 so you can comment on on uh, in the chat if you want to i'm not going to go through all the slavery stuff again i've done a program on that there's a difference between indentured servitude also called slavery okay translated or servanthood um, often the choice for slavery back then was this, um, starvation or, um, indentured servitude where they paid back their debt to the person or the person they stole from. There was a couple of different scenarios. I'm not saying that's the only one. Sometimes it would be a conquered nation in, in battle and they would serve in that sense. It depended. Um, but man stealing the process of, like what was happening down in Africa in the slave trade, often by Africans themselves actually, catching people and selling them on, was evil. Okay? And Christians going back centuries also acknowledge this as well. The debate over a lot of the things that even happened in the States was over the case of, um, well, can you keep the slaves and all this kind of stuff? And the Bible... I want, you to be, I want to be very clear here. The Bible doesn't outlaw, it's very, you know, with, with uh, Philemon and other books, doesn't say slavery evil. It says man-stealing. I want to distinguish between the two. Man-stealing evil. And we'll use a different term because slavery is now a very, you know, visceral reaction. Indentured servitude where you pay back. And I'll just say one more thing about this. Because, oh, that's terrible. Well, back in 1814, I think it was 1814 when the British outlawed the slave trade, 
I think there was a, f- it's been a long time since I read a book on William Whittle before, but there was indentured servitude punishment on anybody caught slave trading. I think of 14 years. So you could call that slavery biblically. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, and I, if, give an example, if today the choice is between somebody going to serve six months away from their family for stealing, I would far rather them work it off and pay it back to the person they stole from. Indentured servitude. So when you're, st- when you're studying through slavery, yes, there's been a misunderstood in the past and things like that, but there's, that's the context. I don't want to go back over that again. I've done a program on it in, in great detail. So if you want to look that up, I might actually stick it in the megiddoradio.com link below it in the related show section. Okay, so let's play it on. So that's where he's kind of getting to in the earlier 34 minutes of the presentation. Okay, this is not... Oh. Hmm? Gremlins are getting into the system. All right. So this is when it comes to women's roles as well because it's very difficult to make an argument for abolitionism of slavery in the Bible, if you want to go to Galatians 3.28 and not have that extend in any way to gender because they're put together in this triad here. Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. So if these are the hierarchies that are being overcome in Christ, it's very tricky to try to say, We'll take numbers one and two, but not number three. Um, Deceptive enough use of the text there. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse 28. Let's just see some of the context. Be very careful when anybody's presenting anything like this. It's very easy to take... Look, we see it in media all the time. Why should we be surprised when it happens with the Bible? Okay? Because often there's a... In the Bible, especially the epistles, there's a, put myself back on screen there, um, there's a, an argument been built up to. The devil in the first 11 verses of, is in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, quoted the scripture. He also took it out of context. So be very careful. Oh, he quotes the Bible. I have New Age books on my shelf, and they probably quote the Bible more. Um, Medieval popes, some of the most evil men on earth, trying to legitimize their tyranny, antichrists, use the Bible, but take it out of context. So just because somebody's using scripture reference doesn't mean a whole ton, especially if they're taking it out of context. Okay, so we're going to look at the So from verses 11, not 11, sorry, verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3. For you are sons of God through, the fi- through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, having put on Christ, there is neither. Now, th- what is the context here? Those who are baptized into Christ, those who have been brought into union with Christ, 
verse 26 talks about adoption. All sons of God through faith. Adoption made um, sons of God. Children of... No, not, not sure what the, whether the original is huyoi or um, tekna there. But anyway, uh, all sons of God through faith in Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, put on Christ. What happens? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There we are, for you are all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What is the point? What is Paul's point as he writes to the Galatians there? We are all one in Christ. Is this saying that there is no longer Jews by nationality? Is this saying there's no longer Greek speakers? Now, they were called Greeks because, why? The world outside of Judea generally spoke Greek. It was the, the lingua franca of the day. Neither slave nor free. These were the major categories of the day, and there was divisions between them in society. But if you're in Christ, we're one. Into the one body. If you put on Christ, you're in Christ. That's the whole point. Not that social structures have gone out the window. That's very, very clear. In the letter to Philemon. Paul's letter to Philemon. He never said about anything about doing anything way about slavery. Now again, I dealt with that in another program if you have an issue with that. But he didn't. Neither male nor female. Is Paul really saying genders are gone? Even Matthew Vines doesn't go that far. Well, did the Greeks rule over the Jews? Well, at this point, it was the Romans. So, male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. This is all about unity. It's not even about hierarchies or anything like that. This is about distinctions. Um, and it was also about the covenant community. That middle wall of partition that was between Israel, the Commonwealth of Israel, and the rest of the world, the Gentile world, the heathen world, the Ha-Goyim, the Goyim, the heathen, the nations. That division, when in Christ, is gone. We're one church. We're to be one church. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Again, is there still men and women today? Yes, of course. So obviously, this has nothing to do with the verse. Regardless of your, your position, you're all one in Christ. And before, right, women were not circumcised. This is nothing about being lesser value or anything else like that, the men were representative. It's neither male or female. Jew or Greek, okay, the Jews were in, the Greeks were outside, right? These are unbelievers. This is the massive division. And you've got to remember, too, this is a massively different thing. I mean, for, for the longest time, it was 
the the Jews are the ones with salvation. The is you know the, the God of Israel, and now you've got all these churches being planted across the empire, being filled with these Gentiles. There's a potential, is there not, for in the first century there was a potential if there wasn't unity for a separate Samaritan church, a separate maybe a Gentile church and a separate maybe Jewish church. That would have been a disaster for the church. But you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's. That Jew, and I'm sorry, that Greek, that person who's outside the commonwealth of Israel, who trusts in Jesus Christ, who's brought in by faith and by faith alone, is a child of Abraham. One. Not a subcategory. One. That's what that verse means. It doesn't mean what Matthew Vines wants it to mean. So, the, uh, the egalitarian argument that Webb makes is also something that Rachel Held Evans wrote a lot about in her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. You can see there's a picture of her on the top of her house with her head covered. That's 1 Corinthians 11 at work. Um, you can see there, that's her holding up a sign. Uh, that is not 1 Corinthians 11, no matter how you interpret it at work. Uh, just quickly, that old context is worship. Worship. Very clearly worship. Pointing back to the headship. Issue. The issue. And isn't it interesting how... What's, what's, what's the commonality? What joins all these things together? What joins the egalitarian movement? What joins all these movements together? Rebellion against God's word. Rebellion against God's word. And Dan is awesome. Her husband is Dan. And uh, because Proverbs 31 talks about a woman who would honor her husband at the city gates. And so she actually went out to uh, the the city, welcome to the city sign in Dayton, Tennessee, and held up this sign, I think, for like a whole day, just saying, Dan is awesome. And uh, he, you know, he didn't want people to draw too many assumptions from this, so he also held up a sign saying, dot, 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 and a Jesus feminist. Um, so the, the egalitarian argument focuses on how, yes, there are absolutely significant patriarchal themes and texts that we find throughout Scripture in both the Old and the New Testament, but we also do see things that are breaking out of that pattern, even in the Old Testament. Women leaders like Esther, like Deborah, who was a judge, like Miriam and Huldah, who were prophetesses. Okay, we're going to go through this quickly. I'll just try and leave it on the screen just for people make it easier to follow. Um... Again, there is a definite leadership in the, in the church. Elders have always been, and there's Old Testament elders as well, always been male, Old and New Testament. Um, Esther, there's no indication other than she's a queen that she's leader of anything. I'm not sure what the reference is there. Deborah was a... Deborah's not a good example to use. Um, 
sometimes people bring up the argument to me, well, should women be in state authority? I would liken that more to a magistrate. And I don't think it's strictly wrong for a woman to be a magistrate, but it's not the norm in society. And if if men are fulfilling the role, if society is running well, shall we say, then generally that never happens. And there's even a hint of that reversal of the orders in God's judgment, when you look at Isaiah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, was Deborah sinning, being raised up by God? No, I'm not saying that. But um, it, it's a sign that something's wrong in the society, and Israel was apostate during the time. Again, she's not an elder. Um, Miriam, no indication either. Hold on. I'm not going to go through all of these. Um, Lydia, Phoebe. Um it's, it's a lot of reading into the text, and I've done something before in that. Phoebe uh, reference is that in... I'll just dig up the, the Greek there, actually, because it, it I think it's normally translated in our Bibles in... Big long list in Romans 16. We don't know what the significance of these people are, other than Paul has a great affection for them, and also at the same time... Um, there's all sorts of names. There's some Greek names, Latin names, a couple of other things. And uh, to read anything more than that into it is irresponsible. But um, Romans chapter 16, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church. And that word, and, and there's no indication, none whatsoever, nothing to support that that is an office, especially when you look at other passages that talk about the diaconate. Um, that's what a deacon means, servant. Um, so you got to be careful. Is it talking about the office or somebody who's just a servant? And the 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 text only signifies that. Be very careful that you don't think every single time that um, let me see here. Diaconon, where we get the word um, deacon. It, it's probably you know like. I don't know where people go with this. I would not go to the point, if women elders are being ordained, then there's just a tossing aside of the word of God. If homosexuals are being ordained, then there's a tossing aside of the word of God. Um, when it comes to female elders, I don't agree with it. I don't, there's no good argument that can be made for it. But I would make a distinction that deacons are not to rule the church. Elders are deacons. It is a biblical office, of course, but it is not a governing office. And before anybody sends me on anything about Geneva, yeah, or was it Geneva? Scotland. I think Scotland did deacons initially, uh, the first one or two generations around the time of Knox, deacons were part of the government at that point in the church government. But they were kind of a beginning of process you're never going to get everything overnight in, in, in Reformation. But I digress. There's nothing to indicate that this means anything else, but she was just a servant. That's what, I mean, a minister of the gospel. Every time you see the word, for example, am I to infer that just somebody is a magistrate that um, it says in Romans 13, I think it's verse 3 or 4, that they're a minister of God. Does that mean they're a preacher? 
that would be silly. That would be an, a torturing of the language. But you'll see this kind of pattern time and time again of a torturing of the language. And there's no reason to take these arguments seriously. And they are reaching. <laughs> and often it's, it's the imagination of sinful men. Depraved, sinful men. Sadly. Sadly. I mean, we should take no joy in pointing that out either. Women leaders in the New Testament, like Lydia, Phoebe, Euodia, Syntyche. Now, I know Syntyche and Euodia don't get as much screen time as some of the others. So some people are like, where is Syntyche? Um, you can look it up, Romans 16. Um, but Phoebe in Romans 16, one is named by Paul as a deacon of the church. And so... Yeah, um, a diaconon, which can be translated as servant. Again, it's the whole minister-servant thing. Uh, you know, do you by that infer that that means the office? That would be silly. That would be silly, especially knowing how... And this is why the translations... I don't know if any translation actually translates it deacon. You can let me know in the comments if, if you have a translation that says deacon, but I don't think that's the best way to render it that way. Servant. Somebody who serves, somebody... And there's lots of women who are in every church, who are wonderful servants of God, it does not mean they are in the office of deacon. Every single one of us are to serve. The children are to serve. But there's a distinct office of deacon that is, there's nothing to indicate whatsoever. And actually, in fact, it would be a contradiction of the other parts of the New Testament. The diaconate was introduced in the New Testament, wasn't in the Old Testament. And uh, nothing to indicate anything other than men Anyone other than men were ordained and the qualification husband of one wife, which is pretty clear who that is. No, there are actually, there are some other texts in the New Testament that have prohibitive language around women in leadership, a significant tension in figuring out how to faithfully apply those today is recognizing that Paul himself talked about some women who were in leadership positions. And mm, nope. I, I know it might seem pedantic to some, and it's like, well, why are you even pointing this out? We get it. No, he doesn't talk about any women being in leadership. At all. And if there's any mention of a prophetess or any women leaders, it's often in condemnation, and, and they're often wicked. So, um... Commended them. So that does indicate that we'd have to approach the restrictive text in the New Testament, trying to hold these things in some tension. Some other text that we see that... Yet you interpret, and this is a very basic interpretative rule, you interpret the, the clear, or the, the less clear with the clear. Because how on earth can you go to... Are you going to get... Is anybody actually seriously going to go to the start of Romans chapter 16 and go, mm, I'm going to form my theology of the diaconate based upon that text. Seriously? Also indicate some movement, again, not to say that there are not patriarchal elements within the New Testament. There are. But there are also surprising... Let's look at this text here. Uh, he's got 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, for anybody who's uh, perhaps listening to the audio. 
of this after the program and doesn't have the screen in front of them. But First Corinthians chapter seven verse four, he's got in front of him. Um, a question sometimes I don't know what translation he's using. Um, so it says here, First Corinthians uh, chapter seven verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except in the consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together. Um, again, this has got to do purely with, you could say, sexual ethics and not depriving one another in the marital bed. That's got nothing to do with the issue at end. And then he's also got Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 in front of him. Go back to our screen there, 521. Again, just don't just... If you are new to Christianity and the way you came across, all that you come across, say you are of that persuasion and you are looking for a way to convince perhaps your Christian parents or whatever else it is, and then you come across, across Matthew Vines, um, look up the text in the Bible and read it in context. You will have a hard time. What you need to do is take concepts outside of the Bible and import them into the text. That's called eisegesis. Exegesis is when we take the meaning out of the text, not forcing it into it. There's a saying, if you torture the data, it'll confess to anything. And so it is here. Uh, Ephesians 5.21. So he just quotes, submit to one another of reverence for Christ. I don't know what translation that is in the NKJV. says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, what's the context of that comment? See that you, uh, go back to verse 15 for the context. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of God is, what the will of the Lord is, sorry. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Okay, um, does anybody see anything about women and men in the marital bed there or submitting in hierarchical roles or anything like that? Nothing. The next verse starts, wives submit to your own husbands. Okay. But that's the next verse. Our, so, for example, if we take this verse, who submits to who example? Uh, maybe you've got an elder in the church who's ordained to be an elder, and you've got a number of elders in your church, and just say, a new member wants to discipline. It's, this is hyperbole, of course. But a new member wants to discipline some of, the, some of the elders and excommunicate them. Should they submit in that case? No, of course not. Why not? We're supposed to submit one to another. 
in what state are there any hierarchical structures how about in the government does every woman have to submit to every man no that would be absurd no not every wives the next verse is very clear to your own husbands not to everybody this is talking about the body this is talking about the children of God walking in light. Like, okay. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, is talking about walking in love. 8 to 14 talks about walking in light and then walking in wisdom. Giving place, by giving thanks for all things, you're not putting yourself first. You're not... It's not all about you. Again, another example of taking it out of context. But the appropriate verse to quote is not verse 21. It's verse 22 following. Wives, submit to your own husbands. For the husband is head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church. I mean, if you take this to its logical conclusion... By this, you would have to say, we don't have to submit to Christ. You know, we have to submit to Christ as much as he has to submit to us, if you're going to take that attitude with this text. Of course, that would be absolute blasphemy. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. It's incredibly clear. And this is why you will see this, not what people are a little bit confused, but with apostates. I'm not saying with a new believer who's scratching their head and a bit confused. This is not what I'm saying here. For the new believer, perhaps, again, I, I give a story where I was saved three months. I was having a conversation with a few friends back then. We haven't never even thought about homosexuality. Came up in conversation. Didn't really know how to respond. Went home, watched a load of YouTube videos. This is back in like 2009. And then realized, oh yeah, it's very clear. Um, that this is an abomination before the Lord. And uh, so it is here. It's very, very clear. It says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And this goes all the way back to creation. All the way back to creation. And again, I wrote an article a number of years ago that these two things you'll see in a church that has rejected the authority of God's word. Not just kind of like, yeah, it's a bit funny in places, but still go. No, no. Has the, the word of God is not the authority in that church. It is a synagogue of Satan. And that is a confessional term. That is also a biblical term used in Revelation. I think it's Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, if I'm not mistaken, of a church that is no longer a church, but has descended to such a degree of error that it now denies the scriptures. A synagogue of Satan. I will continue to use this terminology for any church 
Now, you'll get churches within a denomination, and the denomination is not cut off from the visible church as a whole. But there are certain churches within denominations, PCUSA, churches within the Church of Scotland. I don't know how many of them anymore or even Orthodox. There are, I'm sure there's churches in other somewhat even healthy denominations might even be going towards, and it doesn't take much, sadly. Um, the Lord will fight against those churches that do not repent with the sword of his mouth. You see this kind of language used in Revelation chapter 2, verses 15, 16, 17, of the compromising church, and we have in the West compromising churches. We can talk about the judgment of the Lord, but, our, you know, judgment begins in the house of God. Judgment begins in the house of God. When we talk about coronavirus or anything else like that, oh, how we ought to all tremble before God. There's consequences for sin. We may be Christians. We may be able to say, yes, I will spend an eternity in hell, but there still be consequences on this earth for our sin should make us all tremble not just go oh yeah i'm fine i'm going to heaven no problem here we may allow error we may be saved ourselves but allow error into our churches talk especially to elders that will down the line cripple a church a brother in the lord preached a very good message um, on the importance of taking Jonah as history. I'll be honest, I never really thought about it up until um, he brought it up and he preached a message on it at the weekend. It was really, really good. And, um, and he was bringing up the point that perhaps you are a believer and you think it's perhaps poetry or whatever, but maybe the next generation, that's a scary thought completely abandons the authority of the scriptures. And there are things, there's lots of things that we still have hangovers from the 19th century where we scratch our heads and go, yea, hath God said about segments of God's word. And that specifically brings up issues of modern textual criticism and all this kind of stuff, sadly, um, has raised a lot of these kind of questions. We've got to think about the, the most important thing in all of this is the authority of the word of God. If we lose that, we don't have a church. We don't have a gospel. We don't have hope. We don't have a message for a lost and dying world. We just have maybe soup kitchens. And of course, there's a place for loving your neighbor in that sense. When necessary, absolutely, not denying that. But the most important thing is the gospel. And without the gospel, a church is no longer a church. Let's continue. Given the, that context, 1 Corinthians 7.4, the first half of this is not surprising. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. But the second half is where it gets kind of surprising in a first century context. 
In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That and look, I will grant some degree of, look, there has been times in history where women haven't been appreciated and valued and things like that. And we don't want to be so masculine and bravado that we're going to, you know, all this kind of silliness um, and be, you know, be macho and abusive. Sadly, men, we have a tendency, this goes right back to creation. Sometimes we can be even abusive. And women also have their own desires, whether that's, you know, to, to, to have the role of leadership or whatever the, else the case is. So we don't want to be, oh, yeah, yeah. There are things that, yes, were surprising in a first century in any context. <laughs> okay. It's very easy for us to undervalue lots of different groups. Okay. Um, and we shouldn't treat any group as second-class citizens. And we must remind ourselves, men, because we're liable to take our wives for granted, forget all the wonderful work they do, the hard work they do, and um, may we not do so. And may we remember them and not just kind of go, oh, that's not what that means, okay? Um, there's a temptation there, is there not? Is an unusual kind of mutuality that is being described. And Ephesians 5, even in that text where it talks about wives submitting to their husbands, and then talks about husbands loving their wives, which is different language, you know, indicating more on the submission side for women and just love for men. But it is true that one of the main arguments that egalitarian advocates make in the church is that that whole passage in Ephesians 5 is it starts out with the sentence, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it talks about relationships between husbands and wives. So there are these signals, these signposts toward a movement. This is also the argument that Webb makes for a liberated... The, the, a movement to what? Moving what? I mean, you could just as easily make an argument for... Um... Well, there was no categories for heroin shooting in the first century either, so um, it just wasn't a category then, and um, we should... Can you really make that argument? No. We know that doing drugs, for example, is a violation of the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill, preservation of life. And we know what marriages. We know what is natural, male and female relationships within the kind of confines of marriage, of course. And anything outside of nature is a crime against nature and pointed out as a judgment of God, God giving them over to vile affections. Not just the act, the vile affections for women, and that's why the Christians should embrace those signposts and keep moving in that direction. Even as conservative a figure as John Piper acknowledges the need for some dynamism in our hermeneutics, because Jesus doesn't give us any... This is a common tactic. Don't believe any of this stuff. Oh, you know, we'll find a quote from somebody famous and just stick it in there and make it sound like they agree with them. By the way, I'm not a big fan of John Piper, and John Piper has said some 
silly things at times, as looks lots of people do. Okay, um, whatever the case may be, uh, don't ju don't just take it for granted that he agreed. Let's look at what the his own comments are. Not to. In, when in Mark 10, verse 5, Jesus is asked about divorce. He's asked about a law from the Old Testament and says, well, that law was given to you. Moses gave that law to you because your hearts were hard. And so then Jesus gives a new teaching. So what John Piper said, who is not supportive of women in leadership, said there are laws in the Old Testament that are not expressions of God's will for all time, but expressions of how best to manage sin in a particular people at a particular time. I'm not aware of exactly what John Piper's views are on when it comes to the ceremonial law, the judicial law. But this to take this and says, oh, well, you know, the managing a certain... Yeah, well, what was sin is still sin. Um, the laws for managing and the judicial statutes and things like this okay is there no the 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 moral law written with the finger of god written on the heart of man a creation is summarized in the ten commandments the decalogue that law never ever changes it is the law by which we will be held accountable to but then there are additions to that law that can be taken away at various times for example we don't say that we still are not allowed to eat of a particular fruit in, in a particular garden anymore, are we? So that's a positive addition to the law. That's not part of, that's, and that's a test, you could say, of that eternal law, of that moral law, of that unchangeable law, that law which is very much the, the character. This is the character of Almighty God. That never changes. But there will be additions at various times. There's laws given to Israel as a body politic called a judicial law. And by the way, there is a group called Theonomists who reject that, by the way. I've never done any critiques on theonomy. That's a growing movement online, um, sadly. And I believe that God's law, we should be submissive to. But the, in, as in the Ten Commandments, we're not talking about the judicial law. And, um, yeah, there's certain groups and they're very aggressive about promoting it and, um, not very wise about promoting it and how they do it. But I digress. Um, they believe that the judicial law given to Israel, it was specifically given to Israel, which is now basically done away. We may be able to take general principles from there, but we're not going to necessarily be stoning for adultery or anything else like that. Um, that's the kind of direction you'd be kind of going to if you went down the theonomous route. And that seems to be what John Piper's saying, is what I'm saying. I'm not a big fan of John Piper, but he doesn't seem to be saying anything wrong here. And it is nothing close to what Matthew Vines is saying. Nobody's arguing that the ceremonial law is still there, and nobody's arguing that the judicial laws are still there. Uh, there's very much a pointing back when Christ is talking about divorce to creation, that it was never, God hates divorce, but, not to get into the whole divorce thing, but th there's two stipulations which divorce is allowed, 
if you are the innocent party and somebody abandons you, or also if you're the innocent party and somebody commits adultery, those are the two biblical grounds in which that can happen, but it's evil and wrong if you're the person who is the one putting the other one away. That's literally kind of what it means. Um, but if you're the innocent party, then you are, I believe it's very, very clear that you're free to remarry and everything else like that. But I digress, but that's that's dealt with in confessions. Anyway, um, there are laws that are given to Israel as a body politic. They're not there anymore. And that, and that seems to be what John Piper's saying, and there seems to be no indication that Matthew Vines is actually interested in distinctions like that, but we'll continue. And so what I do find interesting about this is that even the most conservative Christians acknowledge that there, these gaps do exist. So Piper acknowledges it when it comes to divorce. Certainly, conservative Christians acknowledge it when it comes to what, what, what gaps are you talking about? <laughs> I, I'm not aware of anybody's... This is just, anyway, patently absurd. And it's, just, it's, it's lazy. It's ridiculously lazy, but anyway. ...to polygamy in the Old Testament. But... I think that there's a very strong case for acknowledging it when it comes to patriarchy as well, for all the reasons that we've just described. And if we do that, that's when then these conversations about hermeneutics come back to the conversation around LGBTQ inclusion. And this is where I really want to take a closer look at how Webb, William Webb, was applying his hermeneutic to the LGBTQ conversation and where... So let me give you a ridiculous argument um, we no longer are now. We no longer have a law to not eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. That was only for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Okay, um, therefore, we can just we can come up with anything. Okay, because certain positive additions to the law have changed. And you know how we know that these positive additions to the law of change? Because of the word of God. And we're told this. And we don't have to read in to this at all. That comes up short. So sometimes when it comes to LGBTQ people in the church, people want to just say, okay, because it's easier to try to have a one-to-one -one application. People go on a hunt for the LGBTQ people in the Bible. You know, we're going to find them. And we're going to find the same-sex couples who were secretly really happy and had great, well-adjusted kids. You know, like... Yeah, um, it's a bit like perverts will find something erotic and perverted out of the Song of Solomon. That's their warped mind bringing that stuff so, something as beautiful as Song of Solomon, like what Mark Driscoll did a couple of years ago. You know, that's an issue of the, the sinner bringing it into the text as opposed to being there in the text itself. If a person is... The, the, the person cannot use the Bible as the excuse for why they think that way. And, and so it is with other forms of perversion. You can find anything... in the Bible, because you're just reading into it. There's only one way 
You see, it's the same sick thinking that allows a predator hopefully it hasn't been any something's popping up my screen here that there's been a problem reconnecting my OBS software is disconnected and reconnected if you could let me know if there's been any issues hopefully not um hopefully there's been no interruption in the internet connection um if you could let me know about that that would be wonderful in the chat um so hopefully um there will be no interruption that that's gonna yeah that's the problems when you do live programs rather than what i used to do years ago anyway so um yeah let's keep playing and if you could let me know yeah, thank you so much for letting me know about that. That's kind of good. If you ever have a thing and you're doing live programs and something pops up and says it's reconnecting, I was like, ah, not good. Anyway, let's continue with our critique. They're like Sintiki and Euodia somewhere, you know? Like, they weren't mentioned too much, but we're going to find out, right? That Euodia and Sintiki were really a lesbian couple. I think that this is not the best approach to take to the biblical text because the main examples that people will give, there just are no examples of really what we are talking about. I'll get into a little bit more why that is the case. The three main examples people try to invoke, David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi, and the Roman centurion and a man he had enslaved in Matthew 8. David and Jonathan, it, they're definitely... This is so bizarre and so weird. I don't think it needs any commentary, but you know, let's continue is a deep love relationship there and that is a powerful story in understanding that same-sex love just i don't necessarily mean sexuality but that love between people of the same sex especially two men does not have to be stigmatized does not have to be seen as unmasculine and that there is a beauty in that and so that is valuable at that level but there is no textual clear textual basis for saying that david and jonathan had a sexual relationship I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying that... You see the kind of... It's not... It is, yeah, it is, by the way. It is. Completely. Impossible. Your, your perverted warm mind is bringing it into the text. A very thin thing to be hanging your hat on because it's certainly not demonstrable and even if that were the case that doesn't necessarily mean that that would have been accepted or approved now certainly as a gay person reading that text i'm like okay well jonathan was definitely in love with david um <laughs> like okay we're gonna skip ahead here a bit because that's kind of gross but anyway also it gets a little funny because that's in a lot of countries would be considered incest uh, He's t talking about Ruth and Naomi, and again, it's just bizarre and extreme. I think just there's just times when it's like, you know what? These arguments don't even deserve the air required to spew them out. They're ridiculous. People know they're ridiculous. It is evil to just bring them up. So, too ridiculous to even bother to deal with. And you know me. I will deal with a lot of different arguments. This is bizarre. And this is your own warped mind if you're coming up with this kind of stuff. 
because we've got a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law situation. No, it's not a blood relation, but that's still a little odd. Um, when she was married to your son, your son dies, and then you're like, hey. <laughs> you know, this, this could be something. There are a lot of other fish in the sea. Not from all of those things, but it's, it's sketchy to try to say Ruth and Naomi, that's, that's our lesbian couple of the year, you know? But the most, the most concerning one, in my opinion, is Matthew 8. So this is where Jesus, a Roman centurion, comes to Jesus and says, this, this man I've enslaved is gravely ill, and Jesus then cures the man who he's enslaved. And the Roman centurion, it is clear, has real affection for this man. And the Greek word here, some, it could also refer to a sexual relationship, maybe. But we don't know that. It doesn't necessarily, and even if it did, can I be extremely clear? This is the thinking of, if you actually apply this kind of thinking to your general life, this is the thinking of a predator. I'm not saying that he is. I'm saying if you did this with everybody who showed any kind, oh, he likes me. This is a dangerous way to be thinking. It's predatorial behavior. It's why a predator will kind of go, will blame the victim. Oh, well, they led me on or, you know. Not to get into too much, but just there are patterns of certain people who think this way. They're dangerous. Especially if you have younger people and you say, hmm. You could apply the same type of, you could apply the same arguments for pedophilia. There, I said it. Pedophiles don't think they're being abusive. Generally. They don't. They think it's freedom. Liberty to explore, not to repress yourself, and all this kind of stuff. So when you're thinking every single time you have any, that it's always sexual, there's something demented on that. And if you think that way, something's wrong and you need help. Now this does not mean, and this is, I'm not making any silly argument that all homosexuals are pedophiles or predators. No, I'm not saying that at all. No. But this kind of thinking is dangerous, and if you see it in anyone, that person is dangerous. Have I seen it? Yeah. Years and years ago. And it usually doesn't end up well for that person. It's a, it's a demented heart, a demented mind, the way to think about people. See, I, I, like, we can get into the whole intellectual side of this thing, but if, if someone is thinking like this 
and is allowed to be presented as a, I don't know, to what level of liberal or whatever else this church he's is building or whatever he's he's speaking at is. However, if this person's being presented, I suppose in a, in a sense as of being a thought leader, okay, in a very loose sense, Christian, all this kind of stuff. We've got to point out that this kind of thinking, this kind of seeing of joking aside or whatever that Jonathan was after David, that is absolutely dangerous thinking. Relationships between people and people who they own are not models that we want to be embracing. And that, again, that doesn't mean that there like, couldn't have been genuine affection and care there, but like the power dynamics are problematic enough that I really would not encourage people <laughs> to point to this text as say, like, okay, you know, Jesus blessed a gay couple. Um, I mean, so again, it, it's not that there's nothing to mine in those texts, but that is not where I think we have our strongest case to make by any means. But that's not to say that there isn't a real message and a relevant message for LGBTQ people in the Bible. We just have to be willing to have a gap between how we understand sexual and gender minorities today and the ways that sexual and gender minorities were understood and discussed in biblical times. But in the Old Testament, there were two main categories of people who were sexually different and who were excluded and marginalized on that basis. One was eunuchs, and the other was barren. Um, don't accept this argument on the face of it. If you, uh, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 is talking about those who were not exactly sure into some dif dif differences agreement. So Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 says this, he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation, or the, the AV says his privy member removed, um, that they shall not in, enter into the, the assembly of the Lord. Just grab a commentary there of just some someone who's written a good commentary, a good possible explanation for this. Matthew Poole. I'll just grab it there, change off the screen. Do I have it marked off there? I do not. That would have been good to do. So, Matthew 23, verse 1, of, you know, eunuchs. There can be people who are, are born eunuchs, and there's people who have been made eunuchs. Um, this is talking about people who have been made eunuchs, and uh, possible explanation for this is... Uh, Matthew says this, wounded by compression or attrition or uh, contusion to waste of the stones, which was the, which was the course the Gentiles took with infants to make them eunuchs. And these eunuchs and bastards, verse 2, seem to be not only those of other nations, but some understandable without any foundation for such restriction, but also the Israelites. The reason of this law being the same to all with that God would bring into disgrace, and I think this is the whole point here, that God would bring into disgrace those heathenous practices of making eunuchs. 
So it's the bringing to, and that seems to be make the most sense. There's a one or two opinions on that. But be very, very careful of anybody who uses obscure texts like that and say, ha ha, I'm going to hang my own, my own argument on this. A uh, person in the chat says, um, it's very hard to turn our own, to our own gain, Naomi and her mother-in-law. Okay. I, the whole Naomi and Ruth. Seriously, I mean, when I heard about the whole Jonathan and David thing, it was like, wow. But the Naomi and Ruth thing is even worse. It's just bringing your perverted thoughts with you and isogating it into the text. I was like, oh, well, maybe it's possible. Yeah, maybe it's possible that David had a space station and flew to the moon that's not mentioned in scripture. I mean, it's that absurd. It's that absurd. Um, you're just, you can import anything into the scriptures with that kind of loose handling of the text. And that's the language that the Bible uses. Probably not the language we would use today, but that's the language that, we, that the Bible uses. And they were barred from entering the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. And that had a lot to do with just how central procreation was to the Old Testament and how God was building Israel and his kingdom people in the Old Testament through biological procreation primarily. Through his covenant, which, yes, was from generation to generation, um, but it wasn't... It was by faith. Right from the beginning, Adam and Eve were saved by grace, through faith, by looking to Christ. Righteous Abel, and you have a, a list of them all the way through, through uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Moses had faith in Christ. Again, Hebrews chapter 11. Same today. Exactly the same today. You have children. This is why we will baptize our children. Raise them in the covenant. Now, under different administration, of course, and things like this. But from the very, from the fall, all people have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ. Now, they were looking forward to the Messiah who would come. But our works are but filthy rags. Our greatest deeds are filthy rags. There's no way. Blood lineage didn't help Ishmael. Faith and by faith alone. If a person was raised in the covenant and through unbelief broke away from that covenant, they would go to hell in the old covenant too. There's the same means people are justified in the same way in the Old Testament, New Testament, that just the difference is this. In the Old Testament, they didn't taste to the same degree the blessings of the Spirit that we have today. 
I think that's very, very clear, the teaching of the New Testament. But it's not that people, people were regenerated in the Old Testament. People were born again. People were under the influence of the Spirit. People produced fruit, but not to the same degree as New Testament saints. We have an even greater outpouring of the Spirit of God today. But the same way people have always been saved. And that's why not just infertility was stigmatized, but also celibacy was stigmatized. You know, Jesus was celibate, Paul was celibate, and so celibacy has been an honored vocation in the church. But you don't find examples of celibate people who were looked to as role models. There are not monasteries, there are not abbeys in the Old Testament. There was a celibate prophet, well, who was celibate just to demonstrate to the is to the Israelites what was going to happen to them if they kept disobeying God. They were going to be barren. They were not going to have the blessings and the signs of those blessings that would come through the land, through their cattle, and through their children, and through passing on their name through their direct biological lineage. Read Leviticus 26 and tell me if it was based on their lineage or if it was based on their on their covenantal faithfulness. It was based on their covenantal faithfulness. But God blessed them. And he would rain judgment upon them if they disobeyed and went away and turned from the Lord. Again, read Leviticus 26. Procreation was really important in the Old Testament. But that changed in the New Testament. Christ's life, death, and resurrection upended the status quo around the centrality of procreation because no longer was biological procreation the primary way of building God's people. God's people were built by the, the power of God and the preaching of God's word, etc., and so on, in the Old Testament as well. But it's seen in a greater extent, of course, in the New Testament— this does not disappear, by the way, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it says this for 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. And this is about a unbelieving husband being married to a believing wife. It says this, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And there's language about this, household baptisms, households, uh, salvation has come to your household, all the way throughout the New Testament, continuing on the pattern seen in the Old Testament. But now they are holy. And this is not to say that because you're a believer, all your children are automatically born again, regenerate. No, this is what we would call covenantal holiness. They'll be raised in the church. They'll be brought up in the church. We don't treat them like heathen. We don't treat them like enemies. Same idea. If you were in the Old Testament, if you were raised in a Jewish home, you were seen as a Jew, not a Gentile. If you're raised in a Christian home, you are a covenant child. Okay. I don't know. I got two five-year-olds. I don't know if they're born again, but I, I don't say that I pray for them. I teach my children to pray. I don't tell them, well, there's no point in praying because, you know, until you 
have some stage, I don't know, six or something like that, when apparently you express, you, you, you make a profession of faith or something like that. My children may have been regenerated in the womb. They may not be regenerate yet. What do I say to them? I say to them, you must trust in Christ Jesus. I try to tell them that every single day, repent of their sins, and if they don't trust in Christ, they will spend an eternity in hell. That And talk about how their, their greatest deeds are but filthy rags, that their works are not good enough to earn heaven. But I don't say, well, you're lost heathen or something like that. No, I don't know. We feel very uncomfortable, don't we, when it comes to things we don't know. But we have our commands, what we're supposed to do. Raise our children in the way they should go, that when they're old, they will not depart from it. This, what I'm saying is this. The same pattern of children, covenant children being raised in the covenant is in the Old Testament, New Testament. That hasn't gone away. The administration is different. Baptism is given to, to women and men alike. And various other things. It's no longer a bloody sacrament like it was in the Old Testament. But apart from that, it, it signifies and seals the same thing. The, setting before the people the need to be washed by the blood of Christ. To be cleansed. The washing of regeneration, baptized into Christ. The word baptized, you see, the word Greek word baptismos in, in Greek is translated in your own translations many times, washings. To be baptized, washed, cleaned, cleansed. And there were Old Testament. Baptisms, cleansings, washings. Again, where you get the Greek words and you see in the Septuagint, baptismos, where you get the word baptisms. I say this because we, we tend to have this disjointed view between the connection between the Old and New Testament. We must not. Now, we must be careful not to import the ceremonial and the judicial law. And that requires much thinking, much prayer, much meditation, looking at godly men to help us, teaching, all that kind of thing, men who are instructed in the Word of God. But the same salvation, the same Christ saving, and the promises unto you and to your children. anyone now can become part of God's family simply through professions of personal faith in Christ. So this is, an, this is a draw. Anybody in the Old Testament as well could become a, you know, saved by faith either in the Old Testament the coming Redeemer who is Christ same, same thing again. It, people outside the covenant. Ruth was a Moabitess. And she trusted in the God of Israel. Of Jesus 
talking to Nicodemus. Um, and that's when Jesus talks about be- the need to become born again. It's not just about being born. We, you know, we hear about the phrase born again all the time, but we don't often think about it in this context. It's not just about being born biologically into the people of God. It is about being born again by faith into the people of God. And that has a particular power when you understand. Um, same in the Old Testament. Same Old and New Testament. You must be born again. You must be born again of the Spirit of God. Ezekiel talked about that being washed by the water. I will, pour, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Talks about regeneration. And that is not something that started in Ezekiel. That started right back. The only way anybody would trust in Jesus Christ and turn from their sin is by being regenerated and born again. Otherwise, they're dead in trespasses and sins and will never look to Christ. We know this from places like the Psalms, Psalm 14, etc. Stand the change that is at work in how procreation is being deprioritized, in a sense, in the New Testament based on the life and actions of Jesus. So, but we even see this prophesied in the Old Testament, this change. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40, 54, 1, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And then in Isaiah 56, to the eunuchs... Sorry, second commandment violation there. Um, So, no, actually, that is not actually an image of Christ. I thought it was. Um, That's actually, in case you're wondering... Philip the deacon, apparently. Um, so, now, what was prophesied in the Old Testament was the Gentiles, the heathen, the unbelievers, those who are outside the commonwealth of Israel coming in, and talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2. Eat my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. And we see this start to come to fruition in the book of Acts. And here you have Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading the book of Isaiah. And Philip helps him to understand it. One of the first Gentile converts to Christianity was someone who would not have been allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord under the Old Covenant. Was someone who was sexually different and who had been... I don't get this uh, thing of sexually different being a eunuch had nothing to do with that necessarily beside you know um to take that i mean somebody could have been born that way honestly there are people born with defects it could have been something done to him as a child sadly okay none of his fault or maybe he did it to himself or whatever the case may be um that is nothing to do with being a sodomite. And look, just say you were someone who committed crimes contrary to nature and you repented, then of course you're welcomed into the church. But if you continue in your lewdness, that means you never repented. That means you were never born again. That means you were still in ensnared you're still a slave to your sin um just so many people people wondering who this guy is uh, 
from the point of view of his church background, I'm not exactly sure. He popped up a couple of years ago, wrote a book on this, and he put up a video on YouTube about was it coming out or something like that? I I, I did a critique of it about five five years ago, I think it was, and it it went viral, and a number of people, myself included, critiqued it, and I thought well, this person will probably do a few interviews and may not might not be around in a while. That kind of usually happens with people like this. But he's stuck around and he's doing a lot of damage to the church and being very influential in trying to bridge the gap between the church that denies this, you know, says that, okay, the, the homose- however it's translated, homosexual should not inherit the kingdom of God, very, very clearly, just like somebody who's a constant drunk is clearly not born again either or something like that. And then the other side trying to say, oh, let's have a conversation and bring you all together. Basically, they're going to be the ones, that the orthodox side will compromise. And then you've got Revoice, a right slap bang in the middle, and neither side seems to want that. Uh, Revoice are just kind of saying, well, the the affections are okay as long as you don't act on them. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole mess, and the church really needs to iron out its thinking rather than just saying, hey, here's a book from somebody who used to be homosexual. I'm tired of that, to be honest. I, I really am. I'm. There's a place for that. It's encouraging. But surely every minister of the gospel has enough theology that they can go through this and say, what is wrong with this? Okay, rather than having to go... Oh, you know what, I'm not a bigot. Here, read this book by somebody who wasn't, who was in the past and all this kind of stuff. I praise the Lord for the, the people who have been brought out of that lifestyle. But I just think we've, we rely far too much on books by authors who were former homosexuals or former whatever. We should be presenting the word of God regardless of who's presenting it, whether it's somebody who has been in that lifestyle, not been in that lifestyle. I don't need... Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not... Look, and some of these books are wonderful. Some of them are wonderfully encouraging. I just think sometimes we just... It becomes our entire focus to reaching homosexuals. Hey, read this book by a former homosexual. No, you can talk to them. I've never had this struggle in my life. I've, I, I lived a horrible life prior to my conversion, but I never had a struggle in this area. And I feel bad for anybody who did. But I still have the same message for them. And I don't have to have gone through it before I was born again. To say to them, this is a horrible sin. But I love you enough to tell you the truth. That without Christ, you'll go to the same place that I would go without Christ, which is hell. And the wrath of God. So, I think there's enough stuff from former homosexuals? How about... And I, I'm not saying we have to be critiquing all the stuff, even the stuff that I'm doing. Let's put out positive teaching on what marriage is, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, um, and dealing purely in a positive sense from the pulpits and everything else like that, what is a natural desire 
what did Christ himself, you know, he was tempted in all points as we are. How, do, how was he tempted? He was not tempted by homosexuality, as some people will allude to. That's blasphemy. He had natural desires and hunger. He was hungry. So the devil tempted him with hunger. He, this whole world belongs to him. So the devil tempted him with that which belongs to him. Bow before me and I will give you the whole world. And you can see that at the start of Matthew chapter 4. They were natural desires. Being hung Is there anything wrong with being hungry? No. But there's a line you go past. Is it ever legitimate to have a, a, a sexual desire towards somebody of the same sex? Never. It's, it's disgusting, perverted. And it, the Bible calls it in Romans chapter 1 a vile affection. There's a difference. There's a difference. And we need to think about that difference. Romans chapter 1 is not just talking about homosexuality, by the way. It's talking about that which is natural, the created order, and the rejection of the created order. And what does the rejection of the creation order look like? The big long list that you see at the end of Romans chapter 1. Let's get back to our critique. ...on that basis and was now, what is to prevent me from being baptized? There was a lot that used to be preventing someone like that from full participation in the family of God. And now there is nothing. That has a message for all gender and sexual others and minorities today. In that already... Um, for the sodomite, there was the death penalty. Let's not forget that. There was the death penalty for the person who lay man with man. We know this from the Levitical laws. So this is patent nonsense. And Paul continued to identify it as a vile sin. New Testament, we do see an inclusive arc, not saying you have to fit into this exact box where you can procreate in this exact way. And so, no, to be clear, though, some people say, okay, so you're saying eunuchs were gay. Well, I mean, maybe some of them were. But, or, oh, okay, so, so eunuchs were trans. But, no, like... That's, it's anachronistic. The way that we think and talk about sexual orientation and gender identity does not have any direct reference point in ancient societies or ancient literature. So what were we doing here? It's like, oh, well, that whole presentation was a waste of time. There might be some areas of overlap and some areas of difference. So it's not a complete one-to-one -one connection, but it is a trajectory of greater inclusion for those who had been excluded based on their differences related to their gender and sexual characteristics. And Again, eunuchs doesn't have anything to do with gender. Maybe may have a sense of mutilation, and you might be able to, in a sense, somebody with a birth defect or something like that. But again, it doesn't prove anything. Important to remember... And then this kind of gets us back to full circle to why Webb's application of his redemptive movement hermeneutic falls short when it comes to same-sex relationships. What he does is he says, okay, what does the Bible say about slavery? What does the Bible say about women? What does the Bible say, in his words, about, quote, homosexuals? 
The problem, to many of us, should be evident already in the title of his book. Those first two categories are actually categories of people that are identified and exist in the Bible. The third category of people, I'll just say gay people, that's not a category in the Bible. So what does the Bible say about quote-unquote homosexuals? Literally nothing, because there is no... Um... Yeah, and actually, it undoes his argument even more because there is no such thing as a sexual orientation. There's just a a natural way we're created orientation, and then there's a rebellion against that. That's it. And then there's those people who act out in it. There's those people. There are two words in First Corinthians chapter six, verse. Is it verse nine? Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, nor either fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. There's two works there, two words there, malakoi. Let's make sure I get the right word there, malakoi and arsenokoites. Both terms are referring to homosexuality. It's actually why the um the SV kind of kind of squashes them together a little bit. Um I don't agree with that, but I digress. Um, so, First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. This is look. What I'm saying here is even agreed to by some homosexual authors who try to argue otherwise. But um, the end of verse nine, Malakoi. Now, this one's a difficult word to translate. Malakoi and Arsenokoitai, both of them could be translated homosexual, both terms. And they're both referring to, um, let's just deal with the first term first, right? Malakoi, which is effeminate, is translated effeminate in the NASB, is translated effeminate in the KJV, it's translated homosexual in the NKJV, um, you probably go, why is it so difficult to translate? Because there's not... Uh, catamite is actually a footnote given, I think, in the NKJV. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that is catamite. Catamites. What's a catamite? Homosexual, but in a passive sense. Um, honestly, it's... So they knew plenty about homosexuality back then. It just wasn't given... An orientation term, it's seen as a disordered behavior. And it's been around for thousands of years. Okay. It's to say that they didn't know anything about it is ridiculous and silly and absurd on its face. Okay. It's a it's an really embarrassing bad attitude. But anyway, um Malakoi kind of comes from the idea of soft. I think it's sometimes used as in the adjective form of clothing in other parts of the, the, the scriptures. But it is kind of used of the sense, and you can look up things like BDAG, that big massive lexicon. Um, typically costs about 100 quid. It's not cheap. Um, we'll go through that. And um, but so, and then the other term, arsenokoites, literally arsen, men, coites, bed, men betters. It's actually the NIV translates it that way, I think. So long and short of it is, both terms could be translated homosexual. Both terms are referring to what we would call homosexual behavior. One, the first term is in a passive sense, 
And the other term is in an active sense. I don't want to go any further than that because for obvious reasons. Um, just to prove to you, oh, the Bible says nothing about it. I, mm, come on. Come on. Yeah, just don't read, like, Do you expect to find an English word that was probably coined, when was it coined? 100 years ago, whenever it was coined by modern psychologists. Do you expect to find that English word in the first century? Well, I don't know. Probably, you can make, you make that silly argument about anything. You could say, um, I don't know, justification wasn't a category that they had in the first century either. You know, the term is dikaiosune, that means righteous. And the verb means too righteous. You could do any kind of torturing with the, with, with the language in that sense. Of course, that word wasn't used then. They didn't speak English back then. I'm not to be, be facetious or silly here, but this is what you're... The category wasn't... What do you mean the category wasn't there? It's playing fast and loose. It's speaking out both sides of your mouth. Yes, it happened back then. Look, there's this mythology, right? That there are these well-adjusted, loving, homosexual couples. You know, you'll see them on soap operas. And, the, you know, I remember years ago growing up in... My mom would watch, we're like in, you know, in the British Isles, it's, you know, we're from Republic of Ireland and the programs like, rubbish programs, by the way, but, you know, Coronation Street, all that kind of stuff, soap operas, and it'd be the, the gay character on the program. And it seems so nice and they seem more balanced than everybody else. And, and before you know it, it's like, Oh, and your opinions start changing towards that person. And it seems like, oh, well, they just, they're just pretty normal. They're just trying to live a normal life just like anybody else, really. Well, it's a myth. It's a complete and utter myth. No, I'm not saying that just because somebody is quote-unquote straight, and don't go into that whole thing, I'm straight kind of thing. No, these are natural affections. This is disordered affections. This is a sign of a perversion. I don't like the term sexual orientation. I don't like calling perverts like pedophiles that that's their sexual orientation. Okay? Like it's some gene that they have or something like that. It is a sin. It is a disorder. It is perversion. And let's just deal with it like that. Yes, there should be stigma attached to it because it's a vile abomination before God. Um, but of course this was known. This was, to say that this wasn't known in the first century is completely laughable. In a sense, they didn't redefine marriage or anything like that, but the, some of the stuff was far worse. And it was mixed with religion, you know, temple prostitution, and it was all this kind of lewdness. And I'm not going to get into all the details, but just to think that our culture today is... I get, oh yeah, there was a point I wanted to make about the mythology. Do not buy into the mythology of the well-adjusted, normal, homosexual. Look, monogamy is a, is, a, is a tiny, tiny minority. 
there's statistics done in the from an you know, upper scale magazine by Judith Reithman, who's a who's an author. She's not a she's not a Christian, but she's a really good um, researcher in this area. And she went through statistics from. I don't advise anybody do this, but a homosexual publication called The Advocate, an upper scale, upper middle class, you know, well to do as you know as morally upright as you could possibly get within that community. And monogamous relationships, by the way, weren't really monogamy, but monogamous relationships were defined by the advocate as people who stayed together. And that was about 8%. Massively different, by the way, to the quote-unquote straight population, which was, I don't know, 70 80%. Maybe 90%. That was back in the 90s when this was done. Massive difference. And by the way, they do not define monogamy in the same way. Monogamy just purely means they stay with the same partner for a long, long time. But it doesn't mean they stay faithful to that partner. Even that 8%. And if you have in any contact with the pride movement or anything like that, it goes hand in hand with promiscuity. It goes hand in hand with unfaithfulness. I just urge anybody not to buy the mythology that these people that this is just another sin. Of course it's a sin, and all sin is heinous and horrible before God. But this is a particularly dangerous sin. We we witness them, we love them, we try to lead them to Christ, but we don't minimize, we don't wash, water it down. ...standing of the concept of same-sex orientation in ancient times. So what Webb does is he just takes any reference, and this is what most non-affirming Christians do, takes any reference to same-sex behavior of any kind in the Bible and then uses that to say, okay, that's the Bible's message about all types of same-sex relationships today. But in the ancient world, and I've talked about, if you've been at prior conferences, you will have heard this before. If you've been studying the... If, you, if you're going to argue that the Bible doesn't say anything about this, then the Bible is misleading on this. You have to kind of come to that conclusion. End of story. End of story. The, anytime the Bible mentions homosexuality or any, any homosexual acts or abuse themselves of mankind, as older translations would say, it can is any reference, every reference is them carrying out some of the worst things. It is in the worst, most negative context. There is no positive references to this at all. So you have to say, if you're going to say this, that the Bible is misleading on this and it's prejudicial towards their group. We know that for a fact that is not true. Even if you could take out all the verses calling homosexuality sin an abomination before God, even just the fact that we know what is natural, male, female, for life, anything outside of that is perverted and wrong. We know that to go, what is sodomy? Sodomy is anything else. Older definitions of English and things like that. Why is bestiality wrong? Because it is, out, is it is unnatural. It is unnatural. Why is this wrong? Because it is unnatural against the created order. Local case on our website. You might have heard this before. 
We have our How to Talk About the Bible and LGBTQ Inclusion. It's our most popular resource, a 70-page booklet, which you can purchase out in the lobby. And now, as of last week, we've got all this content online for free as well. So I think that's all I really wanted to get through today. I don't know. I might have missed a little bit near the end, but I think the program's gone on long enough. If you've got any questions, megiddofilms at gmail.com. Um, if in the next two or three minutes before we finish off the program, you want to put it up in the chat room, feel free. Um, I, I'm not just putting this up for to slam or to score points against seemingly easy arguments. And I think there's a temptation to ignore this kind of stuff because we think, ah, oh, well, you know, of course people don't believe that. People do believe that. People do believe that. And perhaps maybe one person who does believe this stuff, I pray if it convinces somebody from that position and they see that there's no validity in these arguments and that they finally kind of go, am I even a Christian? Am I even born again? I'm still a slave to this sin. I... I identify myself with something that is an abomination before Almighty God. If you're a slave to the sin, you can have no comfort before God. If you are still someone who practices these deviant acts, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived whether there's power relationships or anything else, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is explicitly clear. As it is for the drunkard, as it is for the thief, as it is for the covetous one, the one who wants more and more and serves money, as it is for the adulteress, as it is for the person when they commit adultery, they wipe their face and they say, I've done no wrong but still will pretend to be a Christian, even though their life, their profession denies that. And they may have gone to church yesterday or whatever they might have tweeted or whatever, but their heart has been unconverted. They don't believe in the God of the scripture. They've never been born again. They've never been regenerated. And I pray that that does not describe you. None of us, coronavirus or no coronavirus, knows how long we have left on this earth. None of us. And whether this is going on or not, when we've got thousands dying every day from coronavirus alone in the United States, in the UK, going up and up and up, surely we ought to say, where will I spend eternity? And when I stand before God, each of us, I, you, everyone will stand before God. And will you stand before God naked with your own filthy rags or will you be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? This is Paul Flynn. May God bless you all. <laughs>